This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised. In the last episode, we discussed the shocking events that led to Jack Walls finally being arrested. We left off with the prosecutor, Larry Cook, recusing himself from the case. In this episode, we'll pick up with Betty Dickey being brought in as special prosecutor and discuss how Jack's trial and sentencing played out. We will be hearing from Betty Dickey and Heath Stocks. Before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit about Larry Cook and how he recused himself from that case. There's a lot of different things that have come up as we've gone through this that are very questionable. And while it's fantastic that Charles Peckett was able to get Larry to recuse himself from that case, it's a little odd that the connection with Larry Cook and the Walls family just now came out. I would say so, because, I mean, Jack was on trial back in 1993 with the Hogans, like we've talked about so many times, and Larry was the prosecutor in that case. And Larry was a prosecutor in Heath's case. And as we talked to Mac and Lance, we see the difficulties that they faced in that case with Larry. One thing that stands out in my mind while we're talking about this is mentioning the Hogans. Larry was the one who closed that case and said that there was no crime committed by Jack Walls. Exactly. And Larry then in Heath's case was the one that drug his feet on doing anything. He wasn't cooperative with Mac and Lance. He wasn't cooperative with giving them documents. And it just seems like anything that happened that Jack Walls was involved in in that town, Larry seemed to kind of want to cover it up and make it go away. It definitely seems that way. When Larry was a prosecutor on the case, when Peckett came to town and he had told Peckett he didn't want to charge Jack with the rape of Heath because Heath would steal the spotlight. It also kind of makes you wonder, too, because if Jack would have been charged with the rape of Heath, that would have opened him up to being questioned about the night of the murders. So by not being charged with Heath, he avoided that. Conveniently. Now you've got... People from the outside, as they say, outside of Lone Oak coming in. And thankfully, it was Betty Dickey. So can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to Lone Oak in 97? In 97, I had been elected the first woman prosecuting attorney in the state with the statements of it's no job for a woman. And truly, it's not a good job for a woman or a man because it can be so stressful. The prosecutor coordinator's office, it's a state office, called me and asked me if I would be the special prosecutor because the Lone Oak prosecuting attorney did not or would not handle that prosecution. While I heard rumors, I don't know what the circumstances were under which he decided to recuse. So I was not just the only woman in the state who could do it, at the time as a prosecuting attorney, but I was the one that they had called to ask to do it. So I went there sometime after the murder of the Stocks family to prosecute the crimes of sexual abuse and other crimes against Jack Walls. What was it like being brought in for a case like that? Well, it was challenging, obviously. They'd ask me if I had any qualms about it, and I had said, No, I don't know these people. I have no problem with prosecuting them. When told that 
the, a prominent family in Lone Oak was involved, I said, that didn't matter, you know. I'd look at the facts and, and do what I felt appropriate. Had you ever done a, a case with sex crimes like that before? Not like that. Didn't know of one like that. At that time, which was over 25 years ago, it was not as publicized. It may have been as prevalent, but it wasn't as publicized as it is now. In fact, the prosecuting attorney I succeeded had felt like those were family matters and should be handled within the family. So he didn't handle them. He didn't handle prosecuting. So what was the overall feeling of the town when you went there? Was there a lot of talk of what was going on? Did it feel divided at all? I didn't see that, th that they were divided as much as I saw that the people I talked to did not want to talk about it. In many cases, they were scared, and I saw more of that at the conclusion of the trial, how frightened men had been over the power of Jack Walls. We think they were frightened of that he would do something to them, or? Oh yeah, based on the history that I became familiar with, oh yes, yes. Because it was a wealthy family. His father was a circuit judge. He had been appointed, I believe, by Bill Clinton, and his photograph had to be removed from the courtroom before we started the trial because of the suggestion of power and influence. It was a, an interesting situation, but I didn't see people taking sides as had earlier happened when there had been a, another trial that involved allegations of Jack Ball's intimidation, attempted sex crime. So there had been a division of Jack Walls being guilty or not being guilty from the people who had seen the earlier trial and had taken Jack's side, his relatives and friends, took sides against Cletus and Hogan and his son, Doug. So there was a little of that, but there was more fear and intimidation. And there was a need for us to maintain no hearing with the judge without Hubert Alexander, who was the defense attorney for Jack Walls, being there. So there were cautionary steps that we took to be sure it was done right, with all parties knowing, and that the interviews were conducted appropriately. Chief Peckett was very helpful as far as information. I think it was very stressful for him, as it was for everyone we dealt with, which was why they felt like they needed a special prosecutor. So you had mentioned Chief Peckett. You know, it's been 25 years. I liked him. I think he worked hard. He was overwhelmed, I think, as we all were, as we questioned witnesses and saw the magnitude of the problem and the charges. So I don't have any specific feelings other than positive ones. So Betty Dickey replaces Larry Cook as the prosecutor on the case, and immediately Betty amends the charges to include six counts of rape, two counts of violation of a minor in the first degree, and two counts of solicitation to commit murder. The solicitation to commit murder charges were due to the boys talking about how Jack had instructed them to kill Doug and Cletus Hogan back in 1993. I think those charges were pretty accurately brought on from everything we've read because you have all the stories of the boys. Wade's statement we just read in episode nine about him going with Jack to Larry Roberts' house and the pink paint and the poisoner on the tree and the Stocks family being murdered. There's just so much violence and death that come with this story. 
And none of it's really being investigated formally. The low number of rape charges that were ultimately brought against Jack were unfortunately due to the statute of limitation having passed for many of Jack's victims. Like we said, this has gone on for 30 years at this point, and many of his victims are over the age of 18 by now. When we reached the point that the charges could be prosecuted because the victims were in that the statutory period, that their crimes against them could be prosecuted, then we didn't try and couldn't for 50 young men because some of them had gone past the six years past 18, reaching majority. So their crimes could not be prosecuted, the rape against them, unfortunately. And there's probably so many more that didn't even come forward. Yes, there were some who wouldn't come forward. There were some who, when they came in for an interview and realized that we could tell them that so-and-so saw what they did and could name the other people that were there. At least one of them I know of said, okay, but there's no way in hell I will ever testify to that. So he admitted that he had been molested, but he couldn't face the being in the courtroom and testifying. There was another one who, with the assurance that as a crime victim, his identity would be kept out of the newspaper. And we started the case in the first day of the trial, Channel 4, who did not understand that men could be victims of rape as women could. And on their five o'clock broadcast announced his last name. And so we were scrambling to stop that, warning them that they would be excluded from the courtroom and that they would they faced punishment for revealing the name. So they stopped it by the six o'clock broadcast. But there were so many things that we had to cover besides getting the victims emotionally ready for trial. So in many ways, like a chess game. When national news stories wanted to come interview us and we were saying no. Wade came in and said, you talk about it to them or I will. And because Wade was so fragile because of what his uncle had done to him for years and years, and we were trying to save him. So we said, okay, we'll talk to him. This is not something, as I've said to you before, I ever wanted to do because each time we have to relive it, it creates all kinds of emotional, mental, physical problems for us. Not just me, but everybody involved. Jack's bond is set at $1 million, which he is unable to post. And during that time, it was kind of fascinating to hear the take on what was going on around that town. Because once Jack was arrested, it's been rumored that Judge Walls was burning a lot of stuff on his property at this time. And multiple people have said that they saw Pam driving carloads of things away, packing them up, driving them away. And it makes you wonder why. What was she taking? What were they burning? I would assume lots of evidence. And that goes along then with what Charles Peckett said about evidence being destroyed. And you have the two people that are closest to Jack in his life, and they're apparently looking up for him. Thankfully, Charles Peckett was still able to find a lot of things like the wig and the books, but it really makes you wonder, what did they burn? Like, what else could there have been? What did they get rid of? And what did Pam help hide? He must have really done a number on her to make her think that she needed to hide evidence and take stuff away. 
Well, we talked in the last episode about what he could have potentially said to her that made her change her mind and stay with him. And obviously, whatever he said was pretty powerful. The only way I can even try to justify it in my mind is that maybe she's thinking of her daughters. Maybe she's thinking that she's protecting them in some way by trying to avoid charges and avoid their dad going to jail and whatever else follows that. But you've got to look at the bigger picture. You've got to look at all of these boys that need to be saved from her husband. But instead, she's just enabling him still. And I immediately think of Kip when he talked about the trauma bond. And it makes you wonder what level of control Jack had over her. Like, what had he done to make a woman that is a mother cover up her husband's decades of sexual abuse and not help these boys? And she's stood by his side time after time through all of the allegations that have come up as far back as the Hogan trial, probably before that. Jack gets legal representation and hires Hubert Alexander, who is a local attorney. And it's been said that Jack ended up cashing in his retirement from Remington in the amount of $500,000 and paying that to Hubert Alexander. Hubert, who said Jack paid him $500,000, he told me $500,000 is Remington retirement money to represent him. Well, Hubert had a reason to get him to plea. His family didn't want to testify, didn't come to the penalty phase, didn't come. They wanted him to go ahead and not bring them in. So it really makes you wonder, where'd that money go? The close-knit community, the close-knit legal community, that it's very questionable how so many people are obviously connected to Judge Walls. I mean, Larry Cook worked at a law firm with Judge Walls before he became judge. So that goes back quite a ways. I'm sure those are pretty strong connections. I don't know. It's just kind of weird to have $500,000 being paid to an attorney for these charges. A lawyer from that area is not going to charge $500,000, especially to Judge Walls' son. I feel like they'd probably cut him a deal. That's a really good point. And like you said, it really does make you wonder because we've talked about so many other things that don't seem quite right. Add this one to the list for sure. This is just becoming like a grab bag of things. Just put your hand in and pull out one. And it's another thing that doesn't make sense. When we started filing charges, Jack Walls started transferring property, I guess in contemplation of either having free legal representation throughout trials and appeals. And so we started subpoenaing records that showed the transfer of property and subpoenaing his wife, Pam Walls, to come to court to explain what was going on. So that helped Hubert Alexander, I believe, get Jack to plead guilty so that we went straight to the hearing. We stopped the trial because he pled guilty. We went immediately to the testimony before the judge to decide on the sentence. We went to the sentencing phase of the hearing. I'm sorry, it's just... These are not things I want to remember. These are things that I can't uh, forget anyway. So we were in the sentencing phase, which made the penalty phase not necessary. So did anything ever come of his transfers of property and stuff? 
Well, there was no need uh, to show those uh, actions once we were going to subpoena witnesses that would have to testify. They decided not to have a full-blown trial. They didn't want to hear all the testimony from the boys. They didn't want to bring his family into it. In fact, in the trial itself, no one came except Jack Walls because his father didn't come, his wife was not there, and, of course, none of his three daughters. So we were in the sentencing phase. He refused at first to plea guilty. He would plea guilty during the different phases we went through. He would plead guilty to all rapes except that against by Heath Stocks until they both took polygraph. Jack thinking, because he had taught his little scouts how you can lie and the polygraph won't pick it up, he thought he could. And so he submitted to a polygraph, and when the polygraph showed that Heath was telling the truth and that Jack wasn't, then he pled to Heath's rape. So like I said, it's like a chess game. You asked me when the first time I met Jack. Mm -hmm. I never met Jack. Oh, you never met Jack? No. Okay. Never questioned him. In the courtroom, I think the first day we entered, I saw he turned to me and he started grinning. And it made me physically ill to have to even look at him. Knowing because at this point I'd done all the interviews and talked to a lot of his victims. So, no, I, I didn't meet him. I didn't talk to him. I have written letters about him. But, no, I don't have any personal contact with him. Did Judge Walls ever contact you? No, no. We executed search warrants on Judge Walls' home to get weapons, and there were a lot of them. On Jack Walls' home, on, I think, an apartment or something that he owned in Little Rock, and maybe at Remington where he worked. But... I never met Judge Walls either because the court allowed us to have those search warrants executed. Was that surprising to you that there were so many guns? No, I never thought about that. I knew that Jack had weapons, that he taught them how to shoot, that he had lots of ammunition in his house from the things we, we found. But I, I didn't focus on the fact that Judge Walls had guns okay. or weapons or rifles or shotguns or whatever. Do you think there were any conflicts of interest going on during that time? Well, I, I think the defense attorney had a conflict of interest in the murder trial before Jack Walls. In the he stops murder trial, he let his familiarity with the people in town, which I didn't have. I could more easily say, I don't know you, so I don't have a problem with prosecuting you, are you? And the defense attorney we know it was a town's person. But Jack could turn on him and twist the truth and look you in the eye and tell you he was telling the truth and they were lying about him. And these gullible, naive, innocent church people would believe him until it got to be so overwhelming that the story was out. So, yeah, there were conflicts of interest within the legal community. So the conflict of interest in the murder trial then for the defense attorney, what was, what was that conflict? He either didn't investigate it because he took Jack's word for it. They never were able to establish a motive for what Heath did. Heath wouldn't talk to them. They didn't look anywhere else. They didn't talk to any other boys and say, what's going on with Heath? I don't know. I don't know what they were. I just can tell you they didn't do their duty. And yeah, I did my duty. I mean, I wasn't as well qualified. I didn't have as much experience with prosecution. 
But I had no problem with doing what's right or wrong, no matter who you are. You know, that's why Jack got away with it for so long, because he's from a wealthy family, a prominent family. And there's so many of them that I know, they're judges, other judges. And his, his aunt was a federal judge. And that's overwhelming to somebody that's a blue-collar worker. I didn't know that about the aunt. That's interesting. Well, there are more. I mean, the, the person, the family didn't show up, but a cousin who's uh, Walls, his first name is Walls, uh, is an attorney who represented Jack in the penalty phase. There are so many of them that I know, and the aunt, who was a state Supreme Court judge and a federal judge. She's deceased now. But yeah, there were way more than just Judge Walls that would make somebody who didn't know. And if you didn't know, Jack could tell you, hey, you think I can't get you? Who's going to believe you against me? So many of the little boys' stories were, well, you know, they wouldn't talk or they would deny and they would say, well, so-and-so, I told you, so-and-so saw you do it. And so-and-so said you were there and that you did this with Jack. And then they finally just exploded. On January 6, 1998, Jack pleads guilty to five counts of rape, and he pleads no contest to the sixth count of rape against Heath Stocks. Because of this, he avoids being investigated in relation to the Stocks family murders. The other charges that had been brought against him, the violation of a minor in the first degree and the solicitation to commit murder charges, were eventually dropped in the plea deal. The Hogan's in another matter. The Hogan's were not happy with me at all because I chose not to prosecute the Hogan's part of that, partly in order to get him to plead. This is part of the chess game of you force him to plead guilty. One of the parts of that is that you no longer proceed with the Hogan's. And I had a chance to talk to the Hogan's afterwards. Should have talked to them before, but things were moving fast to try to get Jack to plead to expose him to what he was going to face in a real trial as far as transferring property. But but the Hogan's, they weren't happy, but they understood that in order to get him to plead to the more serious crimes that we now prostitute, Jack was trying to get the boys to kill the Hogan's or stalking them. So that all, to clarify that part of it, that's why the Hogan's charges were dropped, not because they, he wasn't guilty of that too, not at all, but because traditionally prosecutors will, if you, you'll drop lesser pleas for them to plead the major ones for rape charges. Because Jack pled guilty, he was able to avoid a trial and just went straight to the penalty phase, in which multiple victims of his were able to finally confront him and tell their story in court and be heard. Many of these boys were the ones who stood up for him in the Hogan trial. And now they weren't standing up for him. They were finally able to face him. I can imagine how almost freeing that might have been for them because they were under his control for so long. And now he has no control. I think it was probably freeing for them, but I would imagine it's kind of terrifying too, because the control he had over them to where they would pick him over their family sometimes. They would pick him over anything. And so that connection and that control that he had festered for so many years, I'm sure it was hard for them to break free of it and to face him and confront him. But I think Betty Dickey had a lot to do with that. She made them feel safe and that it was okay to talk about it. While there were multiple victims at this impact hearing, 
Heath was brought over from prison to give his story and to tell everyone what Jack had done to him for years. One thing that's really interesting to me about this is the fact that this is the first time that Heath is telling his story about the abuse that he has endured since the murder of his family. And it is in front of Jack, his abuser. I can remember when they took me to Pine Bluff to actually meet with Betty Dickey and her victim coordinator, Joy Cook. And when they were preparing everything and you know and the one immediately helped me um, you know what happened and all that and I heard him crying it just felt so broken but it felt so good to purge myself the more that I talked the more I wanted to talk the more I resented myself for talking the more I felt I was between Jack and talking the more I felt dirty and shameful for everything that had happened and you know, so I had all these things that were going on inside. And I would go to this place, and this here's somebody that's trying to bring justice to Jack. And, you know, I believed, I trusted in Joy Cook and Betty Dickey. I saw that they were going to do something. That this was going to be different. And I just, you, you could tell there was a, a sense of integrity and of duty to the truth and justice in them that made me believe. And I can remember them talking to me and, you know, and also telling me and trying to prepare me to look, you know, when we have this victim, you know, impact hearing or you know, when they're preparing for trial, they said, look, you know, if you get on stand, they're going to attack you. They're going to attack you, and they're going to do everything they can to make you blow up in anger. And don't allow them to do that to you and take away from what you have to say and what you have to share. Well, if you look at a lot of cases, defense attorneys do try to ask questions that can confuse a victim and make them say conflicting things. Or if you get them emotional and get them to blow up, then... They make the argument that you are imbalanced and that, you know, it, it removes some of the credibility of what you're saying. And so for me, I'm in prison. And so they wanted me and what I had to say about what happened to me to be credible. And I think that they knew that Jackson attorney could attack me in a way that they wouldn't dare do the other kids because I was in prison. In a lot of ways, they saw me as the same as Jack because I was a perpetrator, a violator of the law. And that became very evident when, when I did have to go back for the guilty plea and all that. I think that the little boy in me that had been victimized was very happy to have an advocate, someone that actually cared and listened. The adult me was grateful that they were willing to listen to me because I was in prison. And he even gave me a voice because a lot of people didn't. I heard over and over and over. It didn't matter what happened to him. It didn't change the fact of what happened, why he's there. It doesn't matter. I had heard my whole entire life. It doesn't matter. What my dad did to me, it doesn't matter. That's Joe. What Jack did to me, 
Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. You're in prison. And for me, I knew why everything had happened. And, you know, I had this sense of hope that finally everybody else was going to learn why this happened, what really happened, who was involved, whose idea this was, what was the motive behind this, and it wasn't some robbery gone wrong. And they were outsiders. And I had been raised in a town, a small town, and Jack had reinforced every one of us the fact that what his father said went. And if his father told the prosecutor not to do this or do that, that's exactly what they were going to do. And, you know, when we saw that whole thing unfolding play out and all that, he said, you know, look, he's going to do what he's told to do. And then we see the case get thrown out. And then when Larry Cook dismisses the charges and saying that there's nothing there, no violation of the law, even though he gave kids alcohol, and um, went back to jail um, to go testify because... I'm a state prisoner. I had to go to the county jail to stay there to go to the courthouse and testify. And so they brought me up there the day before, and I stayed the night in a cell with the trustees that they had at the county jail that came out and worked and different different things. And so it was hard, you know. And I can remember Miss Dickey and Miss Court. They told me, they said, look, when you go in, don't even look at him. Don't even look over there. You know, and it was it was different. Everything is different because when I went through my ordeal before I came to prison, being there, and I looked around, you could see the hatred. You could see the animosity towards me. And, you know, I remember seeing people that knew the school. I knew people there that, you know, I grew up in this town. I knew these people. I'm you know, hearing all these things and you know, seeing the way people, you know, were. And then to go back go back in this whole world. It, it just seemed like people looking at me differently. I can remember being escorted to a, a little side room and there was a state police officer that was in there with me and I can remember him making some little comment about, you know, how you been doing, uh, you know, and I was telling him about prison. He said, well, you know, maybe you maybe you can uh, become a 1B or be a trustee someday or something, you know, and of course I had life without and, you know, the officer didn't realize you can't do that. You got life without you. That's not even an option for somebody with life without. And um, so, you know, finally I get to go into court. And when I go into court, of course, I'm, you know, I've got shackles. I've got handcuffs. I'm, you know, uh, you know, I'm all chained up. There's police everywhere. The, the whole courthouse is full. And I'm sitting off to the side. And, you know, they didn't leave me in there for everybody's testimony. So they brought me in right before I was called up to the stand. And, of course, you know, it's Mr. Mr. Hanshaw, um, Judge Hanshaw. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, when I'm called, I get up there, and you know, I can't help but glance over there. And I see Jack. just made my stomach clench up. And I can remember, you know, Mr. Hanshaw, you know, asking me questions and saying, you know, don't speak unless spoken to. And so, um, you know, first, Miss Betty Miss Dickey, Miss um, Betty Dickey, Joy Cook, they started asking me questions, so I answered. And later on, they told me people that uh, were in the room said that my during my testimony, Jack actually started crying. So I'm not sure if it was the overwhelming guilt of everything that he had done and the realization of all the pain that he had caused 
um, or the way that I was talking about it, or maybe the violation of this fictitious world that he lived in where, you know, I was one of his sons, you know, that he had, you know, several of us victims that he considered his sons. And, you know, of course, we went through the most victimization, most heinous abuses, but, you know, it's, it's chosen. And it was, it was relieving because I can remember looking out and Kelly uh, Cunningham, who was my girlfriend in college, um, she sat out in the crowd. She was there for me, supporting me. I can remember seeing her out there. It was a friendly face. You know, it was a face that had love in it. Every now and then I'd look up, I'd meet her eyes. I remember, you know, feeling supportive and, you know, family being there and people there and then, you know, listening. And uh, then when I got through and talking about, you know, what happened, um, everything about Jack and what happened, um, then it was defense's turn. And um, I never forget because, you know, the first thing I did was remember what Miss Dickie told me. She said, they're going to come at you. And so I took a deep breath, you know, pushed it down deep. And I mean, auto, almost automatically out the gate, it was, how long have you been a homosexual? No other, I found out later on, no other victim that got on the stand was asked these questions. This question specifically. And it was meant to make me defensive, make me angry, and make me go on attack. And... And, I, you know, I, I said I'm not. Um, I think it was also them trying to minimize what Jack had done to me because later on you had, they had a expert witness that they had get on the stand who used a study that was very over a small portion of male victims saying that there was no long-term lasting effects of sexual abuse. And... Um, which was, you know, strange because the very doctor that they used, Mr. Moneypenny, was actually the psychologist at the prison that I was at. So when I went to Cummins, Mr. Moneypenny was the psychologist there. So needless to say, you you know, the, the only time that you actually saw a psychologist is when you acted up or did something bad and then you saw the psychologist. So there wasn't much hope in me getting some mental health treatment. And so for us to have some outsiders come in, you know, if Beckin hadn't been there, I think he wouldn't have been there. It took two outsiders who were trained in law and who were willing to do what was right to come in a situation. They weren't elected as the prosecutor, or she wasn't elected as a prosecutor in Lola County. She was in Lincoln County. But they specially appointed her. And so she came in with her assistants and this victim coordinator. And Joy Cook was wonderful. She didn't treat me like a prisoner. She treated me like a person. And she talked to me like a person. And it may have been the first time anybody had really done that, you know, on that level. To make me feel comfortable about talking and sharing. I can remember crying and crying in the office as I was talking to them about things. And, and then... After opening up being so vulnerable and so raw and digging up all this stuff and sharing it, you know, I would remember things. 
things that can suppress experiences. And you know, later on, you know, I try to talk about this and I talk about that. You know, I can remember Ben Turner leaving that, and I had to go back to prison. And I go back, and you know, I go back in this environment where I scream and hollering, and yeah, I'd have to put the mask back on and retreat inside to protect myself. And so it was this opening up, closing, opening up, closing, which I'd been doing it all my life, but this was an extreme. That had to be so difficult because after what he went through and the control Jack had over him, and then he faces him in court, in person, after everything's come to light that he's done. At this point, Heath is still really struggling with his feelings about Jack. He still has that love for him, that respect for him, that longing for his approval and his love. On the other hand, he hates him because he knows everything he did. And it is a struggle. A really big internal conflict that Heath is going through. In the next episode... We will find out what happens during the remainder of Jack's penalty phase. Will Jack finally be locked away for good, or will he continue to slip through the cracks and find a way around the law? And what will we learn about what he did to Heath and Wade that changes everything once again? Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks, is brought to you by Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials provided by the Stocks family, the Harris family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case, never-before-seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.